0: This is Erased. I'm Colette Bower-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized.
1: Welcome to another episode of E-Raced. I'm your co-host, Lisa Johnson, and I'm also here with my co-host, Colette Bowers-Zinn. And we are happy to be back for another Thursday and another great conversation.
0: Yes, today we are going to talk about Get On Board. So with so much going on around leadership of our country and ongoing questions, we're hearing about schools addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion work at a leadership level. We want to talk about school boards. Leadership's everything, especially when it comes to creating change, and that often needs to start at the top. So, today, we want to help our listeners learn more about the path to joining a school's board, what the job and responsibilities look like, challenges, and more.
1: And we have two wonderful guests with us today. John Shalman is a Democratic political consultant and commentator. He's a go-to crisis management expert and author consultant on a number of television and film projects, often lectures about his experiences. And he is chairman of the board of directors at Campbell Hall School, a K-12 independent school here in Los Angeles. Full disclosure, I sit on that board <laughs> and uh, have the luxury of working closely with John, where he has, again, been on the board I think, for 13 years. And as well, we have Guy Primus. He's chief executive officer at Valence Enterprises, a networking platform for black professionals. Guy is also a co-founder of the Board Challenge, an organization that seeks to increase the representation of black leaders on public and private boards. He's also a member of the board of directors at Valence, The virtual reality company and is a member of the board of trustees at Southern California Public Radio and Park Century School here in Culver City. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. So, we like to kick things off by asking our guests. I will start with you, John. When was the last time you felt erased, that is, diminished or not heard or seen because of your race or gender or socioeconomic situation?
2: Uh, you know that's a tricky question, being a being a white dude. Uh, but I, I, you know, I had a really interesting experience when I was growing up in Illinois in the seventies. Uh, I know a lot of kids were being bused during that era, and uh, we heard a lot about that during the Kamala and Joe uh, debate in the primary. But um, I w- was actually one of the few white kids who was bused to a predominantly black. Neighborhood and black school. Um, and so, you know, suddenly I was in the minority, uh, or I should say more politically correctly, today, I was a person of non color uh, during those days. <laughs> and uh, that, you know, there were challenges, there's no doubt about it. But I, I have to say that I was fortunate at the time. I was a good athlete, I made a lot of friends on the field. Um, and, uh, but I, the thing I remember that during that time is. The very few times I felt isolated, many more times I felt completely embraced, uh, candidly. I remember my amazing black teachers and, and classmates who, uh, as I look back at my schooling is some of the best years of my education, that left a, a pretty indelible mark on me. Um, so, you know, here I am a democratic political consultant and I've worked in black politics in LA since Tom Bradley. I found myself comfortable probably going back to those days as, as a young kid. Um, and, you know, I've never felt, uh, it, it, I don't have that, that same, you know, issue. Um, and, and I've always felt comfortable It's comfortable walking down, you know, Crenshaw and 43rd and Lamar, Lemur Park going to uh, get coffee, then I would, frankly, feel more comfortable walking into the L.A. Country Club. That's personally, that's my background. So that that's a little taste of my experience. It was a little bit of a flip the script.
1: And Mr. Guy, are you there? When was the last time you felt erased? Again, diminished or not heard or seen, maybe feeling invisible because of your race, gender or socioeconomic situation?
3: Oh, that, that's a, it's a pretty tough question. I would say that I've spent my life, right, kind of being um, the only black guy in the room, uh, you know, whether it was kind of in the gifted program at, you know, my school when I was growing up or, you know, kind of some of the engineering uh, classes at, at Georgia Tech. I was often the kind of only black kid. So I've, I've actually kind of grown up um, with uh, responses to those situations uh, kind of pre prepackaged and, and ready to go. So I think probably the last time that it happened to me in a social setting was I was at a resort in Jamaica and some guy asked me to carry his bags. And then I, I gave him, you know, I'm, I'm 6'2", 2, what, 215. I just gave him a look and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, right? And, and then, uh, you know, it, it happens every now and then when I come into a meeting late as the CEO of a company, someone will assume that I'm not who I am because I went to business school. I went to Harvard Business School so I could wear sneakers. And, you know, so I go into the, as so when I step I into that. the- <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, when you when you're dressed like I'd like to dress and you walk into the room, people are not assuming or expecting you to be the CEO of the company, whether you're white or black, especially here in L.A., um, you know, so that's that kind happens, of you,
0: whether you're white or black. I, I think there's much more leeway for the white dude that walks in and in sneakers than there is for the for the black man.
3: I, I'm guessing you're right, but I don't I try not to let myself think like that, but it does happen on occasion. And so very quickly, I reestablish and reposition everyone in the room. Um, you know, so, but, but I would say that happened probably about eight months ago, where you know my uh, uh, Chief Revenue officer was dressed in a blazer and his uh, loafers, and I came in with the sneakers and the button down shirt, and, you know they started talking uh, to him and not to me. And you know that that was, uh, you know, I, I think they felt embarrassed. Uh, and I, again, I try not to embarrass people because you know we want to do business with them, but, you know, I think he felt embarrassed after I kind of gave a, a a quick response and redirected the conversation.
1: Well played. I think that happens to quite a bit of us. And I think it's always a real, it's a shock, like, you know, when you're mistaken for the employee that's working someplace or the help or whatever. Yeah. Or in my reminder. case,
0: when you're taking your children out somewhere and you are spoken to uh, as the nanny. Yeah. 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 But that's not why we, that's not why we're here today. <laughs> Fellas, <laughs> uh, let's start with the basic question. Can you tell us, um, each of you, how long you have served on the board? That you, the school boards that you are currently sitting on.
3: John, why don't you go first?
2: Sure. Uh, so I was, uh, I, I think this is my 13th year on the board at Campbell Hall. Wow. And my uh, second, uh, third, uh, second year, third year, beginning my third year as chairman of the board. Uh, yes. it, it just, you know, time flies. And both my wife and I, when we decided to go to a, a private school, and by the way, we were public school kids our entire life through college, uh, the opportunity to send our kids to a private school was, was um, one we couldn't pass up. But we jumped in. You know, we just sort of jumped in both feet, volunteering, coaching, whatever we could do to be involved and be at the school, be present at the school. And so being the, on the board has just been a sort of a culmination of all that.
1: Hey, John, how long were you in the school community before you joined the board? Did it happen pretty fast or did it, was there a process?
2: Uh, two years. Yeah. Two. Uh, I'd say uh, maybe my my third year. Uh, we were. I, I gotta say, look, my my wife and I grew up working class folks. They've all worked, and I uh, came from five kids in my family. I can't remember ever seeing. Any of my parents on campus, anywhere I went to school, <laughs> they're just happy if I was home and not in trouble. And so we, we both my wife and I said, we, we don't want that for our kids. We wanna be present, we wanna be there, we wanna see what's going on, we wanna be on the campus. I was always at the football games helping coach or at the basketball games. Uh, my wife was a room mom all the way through elementary, you name it, we were on campus more than we were home. And so it, inevitably someone noticed uh, Julian Bull, who is our great head of school, noticed and said, hey, you want to join a committee? And I said, sure. So uh, they put me on a committee and I, I was uh, very active and involved in that and eventually asked to um, uh, join the board.
1: Excellent. And so, Guy, tell us about your your journey to the board. How long have you been on it and how did that happen for you?
2: Yeah, it was, I
3: would say my, my uh, journey was a bit atypical. I won't say um, uh, kind of unique, but definitely atypical in that uh, when I joined the board, we were probably members of the school community, and, and when I was invited, probably about three months. And uh, because of my uh, educational background, and because of the assumed uh, finance background I had, because of where I went to school, uh, you know, kind of, and they were in this transition phase where you know they they had needed to add someone to the finance committee. And we, you know, the the school that that my son and now my daughter attend are. Uh, you know, kind of, it's a really small, you know, 120 max students, right? So it's not a big community to begin with. And then you start looking at who attends the school and it's, you know, it's a pretty expensive school. And so, um, you know, most of the people that are there are either actors or entertainers or agents or, you know, kind of business owners, uh, you know, kind of small business owners. And so I kind of filled a unique void in that I had this, uh, you know, business school background and they happen to be looking for someone to serve on the finance committee. And oh, by the way, I think they, they were at the time looking to diversify their board. And so um, when you think about you have a maximum of uh, eight or nine, you know, kind of students coming in at, at any uh, kind of point in time, especially in the, the earlier years, um, it, it was kind of like me and, and one other person, and I was the only one who had any it kind of looking looked like I had finance experience. And so I've been on the board for five years. My son uh, started the school in third grade. He's now in eighth grade, and, you know, it's been a really incredible journey because I've seen. Um the not only in the inner workings of the board, but but why um they add certain people at certain points in time. Uh, and, and so it's it's really eye-opening to kind of see see it at that level and see a board in transition as opposed to a well-established well- run uh, you know kind of board that that is uh, you know kind of just people roll off and then someone rolls on.
0: so let's talk about the foundation for that. What's the role of a board in an independent school? What's their charge? What does it look like from a practical place, John? Yeah, so so i
2: Oh, go ahead, John. Oh, Guide. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm. I'm being called on, so I'll answer. Um, <laughs> the uh, the the role is pretty simple. I mean, the the private schools, which are kind of new to me, it, they always call them the board of trustees or board of directors. I always like trustees because I think the word trust is better than the word direct. Um, we, we are entrusted with the mission of the school. Uh, We develop policy. We create a strategic plan. uh, We give the school a general direction. We help hire the head of the school who in turn runs this day to day operation of the school. So I think, you know, our job very simply is to further the school's mission without being micromanagers without getting in and, and trying to uh, you know run day-to-day operations. That's, that's the role of the staff. That's the role of the headma- uh, the headmaster or the head of school. And uh, our job is really to ensure that the school's mission is, is uh, uh, promoted and that it, we are in good financial stead. We uh, ensure that the budgets are set, tuition rates are set. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're big picture. And we're really not to be involved in sort of day to day operations. When you
0: school. say create policy, can can you say a little more about the level of the policy? I, I'm fearing people thinking like when you say that you're out of uniform, you go to detention, that they are thinking that that rises to board level. And that's not the type of policy you're talking about.
2: No, it's it's not. It's not. Uh, uh, although certainly we have input into policies that might um involve that level of detail. But for example, our policy might have something to do with security at the school. Uh, What kind of security should we have at a school? Uh, Should we have armed security at a school? Should we have unarmed security at a school? Those are board level decisions. So uh, it can be everything from uh, policies related to uh, financial aid, and what our goals are in financial aid and how much we should dedicate towards financial aid. Uh, It can range across the spectrum of issues relating uh, mostly to broader issues, financing, a little less detail into curriculum. Although I will say that certainly as we get into, which I'm anxious to, the issues of uh, diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, and justice, that those are policies that we, we as a board Are determined to set and see follow through upon.
0: I love that because in the current climate, I'm seeing that side of the coin in, like, a Campbell Hall and some other schools. But I'm also seeing that board members at other schools are throwing up their hands and saying, "We don't have anything to do with that." When folks are approaching them saying, "Can we get board support on asking our school to step up with regard to diversity, equity, and and inclusion?" That's why
1: we're having this conversation, right? Because it's really important that parents understand leadership of a school and where, really, where the buck kind of stops. But so, um, Guy, you mentioned joining the board um, as part of an effort to, I think, better diversify the board, which, of course, is always admirable. What are your thoughts around that? How can boards, is something I think all schools are, are grappling with, how can boards diversify when so many of our schools are struggling to just increase diversity among the general school community? Um, are there innovative solutions? I know some schools even recruit from outside of the school to find, you yeah. know,
0: all kinds of talent. What are your and thoughts? I, and I want to piggyback your question and ask in the same answer, what do you think are the roadblocks yeah. to diversifying a board?
3: Yeah, uh, so so I think that um, you're, I'm going to give you an answer as an engineer, and this is kind of how my mind thinks, so please excuse me for this, right? But I think that if you think of a board having a a specific need. So for me and the example I gave, we were looking for someone with a financial background. right? And so me having a business school education checked a box. And I think if I hadn't checked that prerequisite box, anything else doesn't matter. right? They needed someone with finance experience. And so I think that um, it's really important to understand that piece first and foremost. But then I think in a macro sense, it's important to understand that everyone brings a certain set of uh, skills, attributes, uh, benefits to the table. So I think a lot of uh, schools, organizations, um, less so for-profit companies, but you know, especially um, kind of philanthropic or, or you know, kind of school organizations, look for people that can actually write checks. Um, you know, that that is a, a thing that they, you know, some people seek. But I think uh, if you think about what their other needs are, whether it's finance or marketing or public relations. Or legal services, you know, they they start to kind of put together this profile of who they're looking for, and the other benefits, uh, writing, check writing, diversity, uh, those other things also are considered. And I think, you know, to your point, a lot uh, of, of schools right now are looking for diversity because, if not for understanding and uh, being able to avoid some of the landmines, there is catastrophic effect. And and you know, kind of on the flip side of that coin they're missing opportunity for uh, to teach their kids, which is, is why the schools exist, about the situation and the circumstance and what the future looks like, right? So if you don't have that in your board or on your administration or in your staff or your parent body, it's really hard to train the kids in the ways that they should uh, kind of understand the system. And so I think it, 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 onto your second part of the question, what we have actually on our board, uh, you know, kind of, Uh, people from the outside, you know, our head of the finance committee doesn't even have children, Uh, you know, so not only is she not uh, kind of uh, doesn't have kids at the school, but she doesn't even have children, and neither does the kind of uh, another one of our board members who, I can't remember his exact role at at kind of uh, UCLA and and their children's uh, kind of pediatric, uh, you know, kind of medicine. But you know he he doesn't have children as well. And but we understand that it's really under at our school in particular. It's under um, important to understand neurodiversity because we cater to kids with dyslexia, dysgraphia, or in my son and daughter's case, uh, ADHD. So it's really important to understand that. And so when you start kind of seeking those attributes, um, you know it, it really is a scorecard that that I would advise that people build. So that um, yes, diversity is a really big factor. Um, but you really are putting together a representative board in all in all levels.
0: John, did you have any additional thoughts to that?
2: I, I think those are exactly right. Uh, you know, leadership starts at the top. Um, I've always felt that if we want to increase diversity in our school, we have to add diversity to the leadership structure. And it's something that we've been doing now with Campbell Hall. And it's, it's just critical. I mean, people, when you walk onto a campus, you want to look around, you want to see people that reflect who you are. Um, either look like you or have your value, shared values. But at the very least, we, we have to do much more. We always have to move uh, very swiftly to ensure that the leadership of the school is reflecting the parent body of the community as well as the community at large. So diversity is critically important at the very top.
3: So yeah, And I'm going to go back to, I'm sorry, if I could go back to one of the earlier questions you asked about kind of what the board does, because um, I think John nailed it, you know, 100%. The only uh, caveat is that, you know, that assumes that there's a dynamic, uh, you know, kind of head of school in place, right? So if you don't, if that head of school is not doing his or her or their job uh, in, in leading the school, things start to fall apart. And so, yes, the um, you know, the head of the school, people pay attention to what that individual pays attention to, and we hope that they value diversity. But sometimes it really is important for the board to step up and you know kind of go uh, above and beyond and and even uh, kind of step out of their lane uh, and and not you know managing the micro elements of the board as it relates to some something that's this important.
0: which leads perfectly to my next question. Uh, we'll start with John. Can you share your thoughts about the state of our schools? Currently, and specifically, the role of the board in helping schools to deal with all that's being unveiled about the racism and inequality that students have and are experiencing. What do boards need to be doing right now to address this?
2: Well, I think the boards have to uh, wake up and uh, see what's going on around them. Um, you know, for me, this summer, has been another object lesson in how racism, uh, particularly anti-Black racism, is just woven into the fabric of our country. Um, And there can be no neutrality about the fact of racism. There's no legitimate debate about the urgency of confronting it. And so for me personally, I thought it was time as the chair of the board and as a white person to take a stronger stand and to enlist the entire community in bolder efforts to make our school a a truly equitable and inclusive place. So for me, this was time to do it. What'd you do? So very first thing we did, very first thing I did, uh, is I sent a letter to the community. So I said, it has to come from the very top. I am the chairman of the board. The board, uh, hires and fires our head of school. If they don't know that from the very top, this is the way we're going to do things right now. Um, then they're never going to know it, and that needs to trickle through not just to the, um, the the head and all the faculty. It needs to get to the parents, and it needs to get to our alumni who have been, um, you know, uh, uh, damaged and hurt by incidences in the past. There's no uh, no way we can deny it. I needed to apologize for that. I needed to get out there and tell people that um, these are real issues. This is happening in the context of a of a country that's going through such racial strife. We need to say it's not okay what our president is doing about saying that there's good people on both sides when it comes to white supremacy. We need to be anti-racist to our core. We need to not just have our mission as a school be aspirational. We need to realize it as something that um, involves not just, you know, being good academically and decent. It's part of our Our mission at our school is decent, loving, responsible, that's great, but we have to be explicit that racism has to be addressed, it has to be confronted, and we have to do it swiftly. And so what we did is we created, I sent the letter and immediately set up a diversity, equity, inclusion, and we're adding justice to that piece, uh, task force. Uh, We immediately added, some members to our board, Lisa was included, um, great, wonderful, uh, new members to our board. Um, we added three black women to our board and hey. we are, well, yeah. And, and we just, it just was long overdue. I mean, it's just, it, it, it just, this whole year, as I said, has hurt me. It has deeply affected my children. Um, and we needed to do something and I wasn't going to sit around and wait.
0: Nice.
1: Amen. <laughs> yeah. it um no i you know i'm sad all at the same time it's yeah.
0: 2020 <laughs> yes it,
2: no it is sad yeah. i mean it's very sad look you know what i do for a living right i'm in democratic politics i i work every day and every election cycle to elect you know a diverse progressive i've been part of the um that process for a long period of time and um and i see it and so I, I'm not. I've never was super comfortable with being part of a private school. It's why I don't. You know, frankly, I never felt comfortable being in a country club because of the histories of country clubs. But I felt like if I'm in the inside, if I'm on, you know, a board and I'm inside it, why not change it? And why not try to do something to make um, these schools inclusive? To make kids feel or to help kids feel like they belong here and give every kid the same opportunity to be successful. Uh and so, so as a 13 that's, that's year old, right? as a
0: 13 year board member, why now? Why did it take so long? Why 2020?
2: I think I think a lot of it has to do with with what's happened this year. I think we've woken up. I've just been the chair of the board for the last couple of years. And um and and frankly we've we've Done some really good things, but we haven't nearly done enough. And it, for me, it was sort of like you know, I have uh, biracial kids. Um, I have kids who you know, they they are often uh, not sort of recognized for who they are. They don't sort of have this identity. And I was particularly um, uh, you know uh, affected by that when my daughter went to school. And there was a sort of an uprising in her school, small liberal arts college in, in Massachusetts, Amherst College, where there were a lot of kids, minority kids, uh, children of color who were there. And certainly um, uh, many of them were. On scholarship, and there was a real distinct wedge drawn between the kids who have and the kids who did not, and the way they were being looked down upon, the way they were being perceived as you should be happy to be here. And my daughter relaying this information to me, uh, who you know was was a kid who who's had privilege in her life, but she was sitting in with the kids who did not, and I was proud of her for that. I was proud of the school that that put her into a position where she had those values. But it was hearing a lot of it, Colette, from my own children about what was going on, in addition to obviously reading the headlines that that really made me want to get into this. I
0: will say I am on a personal mission connected with my professional endeavors currently to get (laughs) our private schools to stop equating students of color with financial need. Yeah, that's an ongoing educational opportunity.
2: It really It it definitely is. There's no question about it. But I I, factually, the situation is at a lot of these uh, needs blind school that um, we have a lot of uh, kids from from, um, you know, who need financial assistance. More of them are are, uh, students of color. And it does create a, a combination of, of a really good number of
0: them problems. are not students of color. And the increasing number are the students that are not of color, a lot based on economy, our economy. But what I'm saying is whether or not that the the statistics support it, it shouldn't be the assumption in our private schools that when a child of color is attending, that there is financial need there.
2: No question about it. In fact, we've, we've been confronting some of those statistics in our own school, looking at kids' who were not getting into our school, who were uh, children of color, who weren't asking for financial assistance. And and you know, I, I think it just goes to this point that we have to do a better job. We have to be vigilant in making sure that those stereotypes are erased, um, barring the name of your show. Yay, um, yay gotta give the plug. Uh, and, and so we have to do more, than, more of that. And so training, I'm just gonna finish because I know Guy has probably a ton to say on this issue. But the training of our faculty, the training of our parent body, but most importantly, the training, DIJ training of our board is critically important so that we understand the language. We understand bias, both explicit and implicit, and that we do a better job in setting policy and setting the kind of bar as high as possible with respect to what we expect from our from our faculty and our students I just
1: want to interject really quickly I think John is being a little modest one of the things that he's done that I think is making a very big difference is that he he created this task force out out the door just you know really to make sure no you know stone get, didn't get get unturned that you know as he said everything was on the table really just to make sure that it was an independent small body of of like-minded parents who wanted to earnestly and sincerely assess and create change. And so I think, but to me, the dynamic of that that's really impactful is he didn't just create a board level committee. It has the same authority and, and possibilities. And eventually, you know, it will probably morph into something like that, but it is, it is such a, um,
0: I think it just really speaks volumes to being intentional. Well, I think that, That the distinction is not only did he create this, but that he is calling the committee to task and expecting outcomes. That's the big deal, because every corporation, every school in this country right now quickly formed a DEI committee of some type. Right. But it's the how, it's the details. (laughs) There's a big distinction between forming it. Yeah. And sustaining it, calling it to task and asking for outcomes. So hats
3: off there, John. Yeah, the desire has to be there. Desire right has to be there and, and the follow absolutely. through. Yeah, absolutely. Because if, again, um, you know, talk about hiring and, and firing the head of school. It, it's not just the head of school that's running things like the parent body and the legacy of the school are so uh, important. And, and you really established a foundation of, of schools in particular, I think. Right. You know, so if the parent body doesn't want, you know, and they don't care. They don't have the desire. It's, it's really difficult to change. And I think, you know, to your point, John being on the board for 13, being kind of the head of the, uh, the board for the, the past few years, he has kind of had to build his coalition and ensure that he had the power and the backing and support actually to be able to do. And so I would say that the, what's been happening at Campbell Hall, and I've heard about it um, from one of my friends, Andre, who Lisa may know. Yeah. Um, you know I, I've known that you know Campbell Hall has been doing you know, kind of um, incredible things for the past several years. And so I think it is a perfect storm. And and, and you just kind of have to find that opportunity and get in where you fit in. So
1: but I just want to go back to the original question. And and so, Guy, I'm going to go with you first. If you could give us maybe the top three things that you think boards should be doing right now, what would they be? Just in
0: response to the current climate.
1: Yeah. And then, John, I'll (laughs) ask you the same thing.
3: I, I think the first thing is to educate, you know, themselves. Like inform before you act, because it's really I think you Amen. can do more harm than good right now, yeah. right? So if you're if you're um, not up to speed on what is what what is available to you, and actually have an understanding of how uh, kids in particular are going through uh, this situation, I think it, it, it's uh, you're doing a detriment. Uh, you're doing more harm than good. Um, you know, so education is important. Um, I think identifying. Uh, members of the community, whether, you know, again, I- any member of the community, parent body, uh, alumni that really have a, a vested interest in having this be successful, I think is really important. So it's not just about kind of um, going, being comfortable with who you know and what you know. I think a lot of boards in particular, you know, you want to go into the boardroom and have a good time. You, Everyone wants to have fun. No one wants to be uncomfortable, but at, at a time like right now, it's important that you, um, you know, really, Search everywhere to find someone who actually can uh, avail uh, you, you can avail them yourself of of their expertise and add them to the board. So that would be the, the second thing. And the third thing really is execute something, right? You know, you can, you can, you don't have to solve this. We can't boil the ocean right now, but what can happen is for kids to go into a school and to feel uncomfortable. And so there has to be something, and parents have to feel that something is being done, and not just parents of color. But, you know, all the parents that, you know, kind of, of all the kids in school need to understand that the school is not just going to stand by and stand silent and stand down. They, they actually are going to do something that is going to um, bring bring some level of change. It might not be immediate because that's that's really hard. We've been kind of battling some of these issues for 401 years, but something is, is being done and things are going to change and the status quo is not acceptable. So So how do
0: boards do that specifically? John and Guy, whomever, we're out here in this current climate. I received a letter yesterday that's being circulated around a local independent school that uh, in response to the school trying to do better with DEI and diversifying the curriculum, people saying that it's unacceptable. Our kids should be learning classics. It's actually counterproductive and trying to further DEI efforts are coming at the anti-white lens and out on the backs of our children who are white. What does a board do in those circumstances?
3: Well, I would say that it's really important to actually have um, uh, answers to those questions, right? Classics are classics because they've been defined as such, right? You know, I would I would dare someone to say that you know, Arthur Miller or, um, you know, I- any other playwright uh, is not, you know, that that uh, August Wilson is not on the same level and that his plays aren't as classic, but they represent a Black experience. And so I think it really is important to, you know, kind of uh, to do some du- level of due diligence to be able to understand what those arguments are and actually have responses to them because otherwise, again, these parents with the, all the money and all the history and all the legacy and all the relationships are, um, they're they're destined to steamroll yeah. and and unless you have the defense you will be steamrolled because that's the legacy of, of these schools on and it. whether the black kids attend or not the school is going to continue to go on yeah
1: no one it speaks to your earlier point about the need for just education right because really that kind of pushback is just rooted in honestly it's just rooted in ignorance
2: John yeah. what I do think, you think? think yeah in terms of the uh, in terms of what the boards can do now I think um, the first thing I did is do I did everything I can do within my own power immediately, which is I can send a letter. I can tell everyone how we feel and I can tell everyone what we're going to do. Number two, I, I, I had the power to create a, a task force and I made that task force comprise only a board of director members so that um, anything we do instantly has nine votes right? So we're going to do this and we're going to do it and we're going to do it now. Third thing was to add diversity to our board. I could do that. I could say, let's get our best and brightest um, uh, parents or others who we know love this school, mostly parents, uh, to join this board uh, and we were able to do that immediately. So one, is this just a sense of urgency because this cannot be about optics. It cannot be, you know, a, a something that looks good. It's got to be something that feels right and actually does some good. So urgency is critically important. And and the other thing is listening, because a lot of what we try to do is we go out there and tell people how they should feel. What we should be doing is listening to how people feel about their experience in the school. And that means our task force, for example, Lisa knows, every Wednesday we sit down and we listen. We listen to faculty. We listen to alumni, we listen to our leadership of our school, we listen to parents, we listen to affinity groups, we listen, we learn, and we use that information to help develop change that's going to really be meaningful and impactful for those who are coming through our school. I think that's the critical piece of this. And one of those things ultimately is going to lead to the hiring of experts in this field to redesign or reimagine how we're teaching at every level, A through Z, all the way through. And that's that's the only way to do this from my standpoint is go fast and get the right people around you who know what they're doing.
1: Amen. I'm over here snapping my fingers. <laughs> Moving forward. Hey, Guy. So you sit on a few boards, other boards, other nonprofits, other for-profits, What do you see as the biggest difference in the the boards? And is there anything independent school boards can learn from corporate boards or vice versa?
3: Yeah, so I would say this. I learned almost everything I know about boards and the value of diversity from being at Starbucks and and working with Howard Schultz. And it was amazing because when I started at Starbucks, I walked into uh, the boardroom and saw Olden Lee from Pepsi and Melody Hobson and you know, it understood that Howard valued that because he knew that there was opportunity there. And again, I think that's really the, the key thing is that if we understand why schools exist, which are to educate our children, understanding that they're only going to benefit from having a more diverse idea of what America is and what the world is, there's no reason not to have diversity and not to have inclusion and not to have justice. At, at every level. And so I think if we just start there, it's, it's you know, it, it's remarkable to kind of understand why wouldn't someone want to have a diverse representation. And so that that's, I would say that, you know, kind of that's what I learned from working with Howard. And then, you know, kind of uh, working, uh, you know, with uh, running over book entertainment, I went to a Walmart shareholders meeting with Will Smith and actually was standing in the tunnel. And through the tunnel comes James Cash, who was one of my professors in business school and Christopher Williams, who I've known kind of through Uh, Kind of uh, dealings, and just kind of seeing that Walmart too valued the diversity because they understood that there was opportunity there, right? So I think that uh, again, we we oftentimes want to frame this as um, it's fair and it's it's representative, but there's opportunity in understanding. This is an educational environment, and why wouldn't you want to be educated about you know a a population that, in the case of blacks, depending on how you uh, define it, between twelve and fourteen percent of the U.S. population. And when you're talking about, you know, kind of uh, underrepresented minorities in general, 40 plus percent. Right. You know, it it doesn't make sense to not understand who you are going to be working with, who you're going to be engaged with, who may be um, you may be working for or are your customers. You know, again, we're educating our kids they're our most valuable resource. And that's the thing that I learned from corporate America is that that let's look at this as an opportunity instead of just kind of trying to check a box and and fill a quota.
0: John, some some parting advice for our listeners, particularly
1: if they're parents out there who are trying to figure out either how they can ascend to board opportunities and or if they're a parent with concerns and they want to make sure board is well aware, to what degree do you enable that happening?
2: Well, I, I highly encourage your listeners out there who are passionate about education and making sure their kids and and their kids' friends get the best education at the schools they're at to volunteer, uh, join, do something. There usually are many opportunities to get involved and get involved, be on campus, be present, uh, send emails, be helpful, be supportive, but be pointed. Uh, If there is a problem, identify it. Do so in a way that is collaborative. Do so in a way that that shows your, you you want to help the school. Uh, do so in a way that shows that it furthers the mission of the school. But but be involved and and be honest. Uh, I think that's so important. People too often will will fall back and and find others who might feel the same way, and they'll talk about how bad the school is on X, Y, or Z instead of just saying, Hey. Let's figure out a way to do something who do we know that's on the board that we can talk to who will listen to us who will sit down with us so really it's I, I've always had incredible open door policy uh, you know you cannot I live by the motto open door open mind open heart um, no one's perfect no one has monopoly in the truth or on good ideas just understand that and bring your ideas forward get involved and hopefully you'll be invited as I was to be on the board.
1: Excellent. And any parting words, guy, for our listeners, for parents?
3: Yeah, I think just understanding what the board needs, and and if you're uh, if you're what what the board needs, you know, put your hand up, and and let them know that you are active and engaged and and interested. Yeah. And you know, again, at, at some point, uh, your time will come. Whether it's not, it might not be to be on the board directly, but I think as John suggested, um, you know, to actually add to the the conversation and to contribute in a meaningful way. It, it's, um, it's great to be on the board, but it's really uh, critical just to be involved and engaged.
0: Yes, parent engagement, here, here. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank, thank, you. thank you, listeners. Please join us next week as we discuss the topic, Is It Worth It? The True Cost of Sending Our Kids of Color to Independent Schools with two amazing guests, interim head of school at the Center for Early Education, Ravita Bowers, and head of school at New Roads in Santa Monica, Lutheran Williams.
1: And remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. We're at erasedpodcast.com, that's erased with a C. You can also find us on IG or Facebook, also at Erased. And remember to subscribe. Thank you, thank you for joining us, gentlemen.
3: Thank you. It was a pleasure, thank you guys.